Hello again. Welcome to Everyday Theology with Pastor Joel Dietrichs. Elder Jay White has informed me that there are a couple of other podcasts um, <clears throat> that are entitled Everyday Theology, but I welcome you to mine. Um, I'm Pastor Joel, talking from the office here at Calvary in Parma, Ohio, Calvary Lutheran Church, Parma, Ohio, and want to read an article today. It's going to be longer than 10 minutes. I often promise this will never be over 10 minutes, but this one is. But it is because it's so important. It is not difficult to understand, uh, but it is important. It is called Devotion and Discipleship in a Discontented Age, and it's by the preacher and professor David R. Schmidt. It's found in Concordia Journal, uh, the summer 2020 volume. And I'll be honest with you, it came just in time to inform um, to inform what we were doing, I guess, and, and a good, um, good thoughts were moving forward as the people of God in Calvary during the pandemic. Um, certainly plenty of discontent in this winter that we are in, so to speak. And uh, that's a famous book, The Winter of Our Discontent. Uh, anyway, um, and um, so there, there are people going about, and and I don't, you know, doing. I don't know what. Now there are plenty of people coming to church. Uh, still, like many of you who are hearing this, some of you who are hearing this are staying at home still. And um, <clears throat> first, um, I want to assure you, we're making it as safe as possible for you to come out again. I'm sending this communication to you. Uh, some of you on on a hard copy of a CD. That I'll format later uh, because uh, some do not have internet connections um, and so then also you'll receive a hard copy from me of this article okay I'll talk about how we apply this and, and how it's going to apply later but let me just read this to you just just amazing <clears throat> David R Schmidt is the Greg Bennett Memorial Professor of homiletics that's a fancy word for preaching and literature at my alma mater, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He is a professor of practical theology and chair of the practical department. His interests and area of expertise, areas of expertise include preaching, the intersections of faith and culture, particularly literary culture, spiritual autobiography, and the devotional life. <clears throat> he says, if you go to a bookstore and browse through the religious section, you will find more than one row of books on the devotional life. Everything from daily devotional readings to more rigorous explanations of devotional habits face the inquiring reader. In our culture of consumerism, the devotional life has become a product, and there are many vendors offering what they promise will start, restart, charge, or change your devotional life. What I find interesting here. It's not how many books there are on the devotional life, but the fact that there is such a need among Christians for counsel on devotion. You would think that at some point Christians would wake up and find out they have one too many books on improving their devotional life. Yet the devotional genre is expanding because the present need is so great. Why do Christians feel this deep need for developing lives of devotion today, and how should the church respond? This article is an exploration of devotion and discipleship in a discontented age. And what follows, I would like to do two things. 
First, I'd like to broaden our definition of devotion. To be clear about my argument, I believe many Christians are dissatisfied with their devotional lives, not because they lack active practices of devotion, but because they define devotion too narrowly and therefore don't see the devotional lives they already have. Second, after broadening our definition of devotion, I'd like to explore how that definition interacts with the challenges of our cultural context. To be clear, I believe there are three main forces that give shape to our discontented age. Distraction, disenchantment, and disillusionment. For each of these forces, I would like to suggest a devotional response. Well, let's begin by defining devotion. If you were to call a friend and she was to say to you, can I call you back later? I'm in the middle of my devotion. What would you think she was doing? Most likely, you would picture her sitting in a quiet place, reading scripture, and letting the words of scripture lead her into prayer. You would probably not think that she was gardening, recycling her trash, putting up flyers to coordinate a neighborhood cleanup, or trying to manage the kids as she was driving to a food co-op to support local farms. Yet all of these activities could be forms of devotion. A devotion to the first article and her Christian belief about the stewardship of creation, for example. Now, instead of seeing her as devoted to the first article through activities out in the world, we imagine her in a moment of devotion marked by the contemplative reading of scripture and prayer. Reading and meditating on scripture, that's our primary understanding of devotion. For me, this definition is a bit narrow. I'm not saying it's wrong, just too narrow. First, this narrow definition captures only some of what Scripture says about devotion and discipleship. Yes, devotion involves meditation on the Scriptures, but that meditation leads into so much more. For example, consider how the Apostle Paul speaks about devotion in his pastoral letter, letter to Titus, the book of Titus. <clears throat> Paul has left Titus behind in Crete <clears throat> in order to bring about order in the chaos that was the church there. Having been to Crete, Paul knows that it is a challenging climate for Christians. People are drawn into their passions and desires until ultimately they are driven by them. <clears throat> Pardon me, yet God has made his saving grace known among them in Jesus Christ. Those who once were enslaved to various passions and pleasures, quote-unquote, have received, quote, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 3. In Christ, God has brought them from slavery into freedom. Now, instead of being ruled by their passions, they're drawn into the life of the Spirit, and Paul speaks about this spiritual life in terms of devotion. Twice, Paul counsels Titus to lead the people that they might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and beneficial for people, he says. In a cultural context where Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and in an ecclesial context where people are drawn to, quote, Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, Paul encourages Titus to cultivate among God's people a devotion to good works. Such devotion will manifest their freedom in the spirit, and such works will be excellent and beneficial for the church and the world. 
Devotion here is more than a contemplative life meditating on the scriptures. It also involves an active life manifesting the work of the Spirit in the world. Second, this narrow definition doesn't mirror what the church has called the devotional life throughout the centuries. To define devotion as reading and meditating on scripture makes sense at a time when literacy rates are high and the scriptures are readily available to us. But historically, even when literacy rates were low and the scriptures were not too readily available, God's people had lives of devotion. Certainly, lives of devotion have been misunderstood throughout the church's history, even as they were misunderstood in Crete when Paul wrote to Titus. But they have been rightly practiced, producing that which is excellent and beneficial for people. Throughout history, the Spirit has worked through the Word to cultivate lives of devotion. In hymnody and art, in hospitals and charities, the works of God by the people of God bear witness to the church's much larger definition of devotion through the ages. For this reason, I suggest we consider a broader definition of devotion. Devotion is, first, a deep reverence for a teaching of the faith, and second, it manifests itself in contemplative and active practices out in the world. So it's inner and outer, inner and outer. Now, Psalm 1 has been used often as an introduction to the devotional life. Let's look at the beginning of the psalm, attending to how it describes devotion as both inside and outside, a contemplative and and an active life. The psalmist begins by contrasting activities in the world to meditation upon God's word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, it says, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and on his Torah he meditates day and night. Instruction, the law, the Torah. Here we have movement from action, walking, standing, sitting, in a world of corruption, to deep reverence for the teachings of the faith. This deep reverence manifests itself in contemplation of God's word. On his law he meditates day and night, it says. So, devotion is a deep reverence for teaching of the faith that manifests itself in contemplation of God's word. But notice how he has not stopped there with contemplation. It moves back into action out in the world. Such action is different from the action at the beginning of the psalm. Here, the psalmist broadens our understanding of devotion. Quote, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Suddenly, meditation upon God's word, that is, drawing sustenance from the streams of water, produces fruit in the believer's life. Quote, yields its fruit in its season. The psalm does not leave the believer in a private moment of meditation withdrawn from the public world. No, the psalm pictures the believer out in the world, manifesting the vibrancy and fullness of the devotional life. As God's people meditate on the word, the word works in their lives to bear fruit in the world. One way of understanding devotion, therefore, is that devotion is a deep reverence for a teaching of the faith that takes shape in contemplative and active practices in the world. Consider once again our friend whom we call on the phone. 
What is happening when she says she is having her devotion? First, at the heart of her devotion will lie a deep reverence for a teaching of the faith. For example, she could be devoted to the care of her creation. If this were the case, at the heart of her devotion lies the teaching that God created and cares for the world and calls us to be stewards or managers of his gifts, tending and caring for his creation. Second, deep reverence for this teaching will lead into contemplative and active practices out in the world. Her devotion could be the contemplative practice of reading Psalm 104, say, and meditating on the wonders of creation, praying a hymn of praise to the Lord. Or it could be the active practice of picking up trash along a nature trail, posting information about a neighborhood cleanup, or participating in a co-op to support local farms. In both cases, however, notice how there are two qualities present. A teaching of the faith that comes to us through God's word, read, spoken, signed, or sung, and the life that flows from deep reverence for that teaching. These two qualities are necessary for devotion. The teaching of the faith anchors devotion in God's word, and the deep reverence for that teaching gives shape to the devotional life in a variety of ways. <coughs> the teaching is necessary because we're often tempted to be devoted to things that are not of God. If you look at our world, you will see people who are devoted but not necessarily devoted to the things of God. For example, our culture forms people who are devoted to consumerism. They are devoted to having the latest product on the market at all times. Some will research for hours to find the latest high-def TV. Others will camp out overnight outside a store just to get the latest phone. People will remodel their kitchens, not because they need remodeling, but because they want the latest trend in design. People's lives are consumed with consuming. They're committed, devoted, but not devoted to the things of God. Without the Word of God, our devotion can be focused on the wrong things. With the Word of God, however, we are anchored in belief. But devotion is more than belief. It is a deep reverence for a particular teaching that manifests itself, again, in contemplative or active practices out in the world. Hearing God's Word... By the power of the Spirit, we are like that tree which bears fruit in the world. As Paul would say, we learn to devote ourselves to particular teachings. Think about how this shapes the way you look at devotion in your congregation. Sometimes when we think about devotion in the congregation, we assess it by how many people are using portals of prayer or partaking in a program to read through the Bible. A broader definition of devotion gives us a different way of seeing things. Congregations are gathered by God around his word. In that word, there is a belief that is common to us all. All of God's people come and confess the faith that we share. We all believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for forgiveness, life, and salvation. We all believe in the saving work of God in baptism. We all believe in the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. We all believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe in the stewardship of creation. We believe in marriage, God's gift of life, God's care for the poor, God's care for the poor, uh, God's care for everyone in mission, in the resurrection of the body, and so on and so on. We believe these things, but not all of us are devoted to them. 
in your congregation, the Spirit draws some people to meditate deeply upon these teachings and begins to produce in their lives the fruits of such belief. The church then witnesses lives of devotion that flow from the Spirit's work through God's Word in their midst. For example, in your congregation, you might have a couple devoted to marriage. All of your members believe in marriage as God's gift, but this couple is devoted to it. Let's say they've been married for 38 years. They frequently attend marriage enrichment seminars. They juggle their schedules every year just to make sure they can attend one. The Spirit has cultivated within them a deep reverence for marriage, and not just their marriage, but marriage. They have asked you as the pastor to include prayers each week for those who are celebrating wedding anniversaries. They want those who are married to know that the church is praying for them. They have asked if they can serve as sponsors for newly married couples in the congregation. It has gone well. They have encouraged the congregation. Their deep reverence for God's teaching about marriage has led to a variety of contemplative and active practices of the faith. While everyone in the congregation may believe in marriage, not everyone is as devoted to it, but that's okay. If we were to use the narrow definition of devotion, that is, reading and meditating on scripture, not much of what I have described above would be considered devotion. This couple might feel like they, they have poor devotional lives, in fact. Yet with a broader definition of devotion, suddenly we begin to see how deep and rich their devotional life truly is, and how varied the working of the Spirit through devotion can be. <clears throat> and this really, by the way, is my purpose for reading this for you as the Christian education team and as the, the Board of Elders uh, leading the way in, in these things. <clears throat> Consider the variety of ways, Dr. Schmidt says, in which people might manifest their devotion to another teaching, for example, caring, of, caring for the poor. For Brian, this is something he does after work. He's an engineer, and on Wednesday nights, he doesn't go home to his family, but instead goes to a homeless shelter to serve dinner and offer life skills coaching for those who want it. For Carolyn, it is a part of her vocation. Carolyn is a lawyer with a prestigious law firm. If you look at her caseload, you will see she always has one case for those who can't afford her services. It is pro bono. She believes that the poor should have adequate representation. And this is one small way she puts that belief into practice. <coughs> for Lynn, it is a regular part of her Lenten observance. During the season of Lent, she gives up something for herself and gives something to the poor. Devotion could be part of one's vocation or not part of one's vocation. It could be for a moment or for a lifetime. In fact, a person's devotion might change over time. Some Christians change in the devotional practices they engage in. Other Christians change in terms of the teaching to which they are devoted. A couple devoted to raising children in the faith, for example, uh, manifesting that devotion through leadership of the youth group, for example, uh, after the, their children have graduated from college and moved away from home, are drawn to different teachings, maybe, you know, and move on from the youth group. Devotion is a varied gift of the Spirit, bearing fruit in due season. Whether it's part of one's vocation or not, whether it is for a season or a lifetime, God's people learn to devote themselves to good works, 
Again, Titus, chapter 3, verse 14. The Spirit raises up people devoted to the ways of God, and in doing this, the church becomes a vibrant place of varied devotion, inspired by the Spirit, producing works that build up the community and witness to the working of God. As Paul tells us, this devotion is excellent and beneficial for the people of the church and for the world. For example, I believe in the sanctity of life, but I would not say I am devoted to that teaching. I had a moment in my life when I was beginning to be drawn into that teaching, but it backfired on me. <coughs> in high school, we were asked to give a speech in one of our classes. I chose the topic of pro-life. Now, I was in high school. I didn't know how to talk about this with maturity from a lifetime of experience. I just had political rhetoric of our culture and a full-size poster of aborted fetuses in a trash can, and I let this class of unsuspecting 10th graders have it. Other students talked about hiking or football. I preached about pro-life. People didn't talk to me for weeks. I lost so many friends through one 10-minute speech on pro-life, I've always been somewhat wary of the topic. But here at Concordia Seminary, there is a life team. This life team has individuals whom I would say learn to devote themselves to this teaching. They have exercised leadership and care in helping the seminary attend to the gift of life. <coughs> the efforts of these people over the years have opened my eyes to the depth and beauty of this teaching. In a culture that approaches such matters, matters politically, with marches on Washington and angry debates, the life team offers another way. We see how life issues are not limited to unborn children. <coughs> they encompass matters of singleness, care for the elderly, care for those with brain disorders, suicide prevention, and more. For each of these dimensions, there are various activities that come out of the life team's devotion. It may be a lecture on campus. It may be a prayer in chapel. A few years ago, we had a chapel service acknowledging those who have lost a life through miscarriage. This public attention to what is often a private loss was beautiful to behold. This is the beauty of lives of devotion. They lead people deeper into these teachings and produce materials that can serve and educate and edify the church. Think about it. The church now has prayers and services to help parents grieving the death of an unborn child. We all believe that God is the creator of life and that we are to be stewards of this gift but we're not all devoted to this particular teaching, and the devotion of some is of service to all, as it opens up God's word and ways for us in the world. I could go on and on here, but I think you get the idea. Devotion is a deep reverence for a teaching of the faith that manifests itself in contemplative, inside, and active outside practices in the world. It is beautiful and beneficial for the church and world. If I were to have a parishioner come up to me and say, Pastor, can you help me with my devotional life? I would not immediately offer a copy of some devotional book. Instead, I would pause, lead the parishioner to think about a broader definition of devotion. And when he or she says, <coughs> I'm struggling with my devotional life, I might ask one simple question. What are you devoted to? This question will help us discern the teaching of the faith that lies at the heart of that person's devotion and help my parishioners learn to devote themselves to good works. Throughout our lives, 
we're learning, by the power of the Spirit, to devote ourselves to the things of God, and this devotion produces fruit in our lives that is beautiful and beneficial to the church and world. So, that's a definition of devotion. Now, I'd like to consider our cultural context. How does Christian devotion interact with the challenges of our culture? In what follows, I will consider how our particular cultural moment presents three challenges to the devotional life, and how for each challenge, God works through his word to reform our lives to devotion that we might live as faithful disciples in a discontented age. This time I'll just pause the recording and give you a break. We will go into distraction, disillusionment, and um, the other one. Yeah, being discontented, discontented age. Hope you have enjoyed this first half. This has been 24 minutes and 25 minutes here exactly. And I'm stopping for a break.